You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host. As always, this week, we're going to have a conversation with one of Perth's most outspoken, active developers whose ideas and lived experiences resonate with me quite strongly and I thought it would be quite insightful to have a conversation with Hutan Golistani from Golistani Developments, currently quite active around the Subiaco area, but has definitely been active across Western Australia as he has grown in his role from graduate at Curtin to now developing apartment buildings and thinking about that urban infill space in 2023. So Hutan, thanks so much for coming in. Oh, thank you, Trent. Thanks for that introduction. I appreciate it. We'll have a chat about your upbringing you're someone who, I think in a similar vein to me, runs a targeted small business looking to make a difference with what you're good at and what you're passionate about. And that clearly these days looks like it's urban infill. It looks like the apartment built mm-hmm. form space. Yep. You clearly think very deeply about it. To get there though, it doesn't just happen overnight as most people recognize. Most people uh, spinning their wheels in the house behind a house space or the triplex space where a lot of us started, to be frank, will recognize very clearly that there is a big jump there isn't just one jump. There are many jumps, to be frank, to get from that first position of dipping your toes in the water to being able to make an impact on one of the most prominent streets in Western Australia, Rockaby Road. Where did it all start for you? I know with a surname like that, it probably didn't start in Western Australia. <laughs> no, my family is originally from Iran, but my father was studying in the US. My family moved out of Iran in 1976. There was obviously the turmoil happening in Iran. Post the revolution, my father just wanted to see the world. It was a simple conversation with a friend of his in the Gold Coast. And he asked, what's the weather like there? But he said, warm. He said, you know, what language do they speak? He said, English. And he said, what's the economy like? And it was 1980. And he went, ah, meh. And he goes, yeah, that'll do. And <laughs> next thing you know, we immigrated to Australia, starting in Queensland. My father was in public health. So his main area was dealing with typhoid, which was happening significantly in Papua New Guinea. So there was going to be that kind of connection. He landed here. And the first thing he saw was plenty of opportunity. And like all good ethnic men who come here with a PhD in something, he said, uh, I might do real estate. <laughs> so that started that process. Numerous times I went with my dad and looking at open homes and things like that. And I'd had an interest in architecture for a long time, but I got into curtain and architecture. Long way from Queensland. My brother got into the dental school here and my mom and dad wanted to keep the family together. So brought me with them. 1984, I went to Hollywood High School. I really loved Hollywood. It was an amazing school. The kids there were, were great, really good to me. It's interesting. You have an American accent. You obviously have an Iranian background, but I would consider your upbringing. You're a Australian as it gets. I can't lose the accent. I've tried, (laughs) but I sound really weird when I fake it. So yeah, you just have to give in. They say it's the laziest on the palate. It moves you straight into obviously architecture, having that context from your dad presenting real estate to you in a first-hand experience. What did architecture teach you and and how did you move on from there? When I went into the School of Architecture at Curtin, it was a very rudimentary kind of a process. It was very utilitarian. There was a big war in the school about just, you know, architecture as a science and a few lecturers who really saw, I don't want to say architecture as an art, but it was something more expressive than we were learning at at Curtin University. Not just functional. I actually found that whole experience of the science of architecture to be unbelievably boring. And I, as a a diligent student, but as soon as I got to uni, I imploded. I wanted to see the universe. I felt this was just unbelievably limiting. So I was a terrible student. I did really, really bad for quite a while. 
Unlike- no surprise though, right? We're talking to Dave Hillam about his experience, half the class was gone in the second year. And I hear that often from people who've been in the architecture school. The herd thins very quickly. The attrition rate's unbelievable. My biggest issue as well was that we were doing some really crazy hours and I was burning out and I couldn't keep up. I had friends of mine and great architects and they're doing amazing work and they managed. But for me, it just was not going to happen. Do you think it might have been, and this would be relevant to a lot of young people going through university, listening to this podcast, that maybe you were in the right industry, but maybe not the right profession and your passion was slightly misaligned to your studies at that point in time? Yes, but look, we really have to be honest here. I had to go see a sleep specialist. I never forget the conversation was that population of WA that are architects is 1%. They were probably about 25% of his business. How'd you go? You finished that course, obviously. Uh, Look, I took my time. I went part-time. From Curtin, I went to uh, UWA, which is where I graduated from. I started to work in a series of offices, and I realized pretty quickly that I could go hungry, that I needed a second job for my job. I loved what I was doing to a degree, but I couldn't really keep up. The pay, and for the hours I was doing, not even remotely close. And that's where property development, like Dave Hillam, again, I should say, became a natural extension to the skills you had already learned at university. Most of us, when we're studying, we besmirch developers like you wouldn't believe. Really? Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, look at the crap they're doing. And in those days, a lot of the developments that were being done were very utilitarian, rudimentary, and if anything, a bit of a pastiche of look at this style and look at that style. It was eclectic. I mean, one thing you can say about Perth built form Mm -hmm. is that it is eclectic. There's very few spaces, activity centers in Western Australia that you could say have a uniform style. And that's because of the multi-cyclical, multi-generational timeframes that certain developments on certain lots have come out of the ground. Perth was and still is a little bit of a hodgepodge. There's a lot of elements and aesthetics and it styles. It will continue to be. We have too many local planning policies, ever-changing local planning policies, ever-changing stylistic and material-driven evolution over time. Because of that, because we're always, we've always got the new facade or the new cladding coming through into our industry, selling that new development, making it look sexy, being able to sell it to the public. It's very rare we're going to have a generation of very similar built form and, and style. Isn't, yeah. Is that not correct? Uh, absolutely. I mean, look, you go to somewhere like Amsterdam, and you see this varying kind of aesthetics, but they all work together to be this uniform element. Very thematic. Correct. And, but the key thing was, was that that was built at a certain time and culture where that level of expression was all that they wanted and needed. It didn't change for generations. It, it didn't change. It didn't need to. Now, at a time when Perth was that culture, we didn't build much. So what you found is that you would see a series of buildings, but there would be vacant lots, two between them. In residential areas, it was large, large lots. So now we're in a culture where that just does not apply. And we talk about how we're going to reinstate that, but we can't. We've moved on. Everything has moved on. Materials has moved on. Construction has moved on. Costs has moved on. We have moved on. And so what we find ourselves is in a city that's in a state of flux. That's why we have all the varying voices. That's why we have all the angst about development. Yes, developments can be way better, without a doubt, and they should be. But the belief that uh, we can somehow rebuild uh, now King Charles's city in... Uh, Poundbury. Yeah, it, it won't work. And if anything, realistically, the economics of that... Well, and that's the reason the economics, right? You spoke about having that first job. What was the first development? I was doing developments on the side while I was working in an architectural office. It was family and the first... When was this? Oh, God, 1995. Which suburb? 
Subiaco again. This was the moment where it was kind of like Texas, put your finger in the ground and oil will pop up. And we used to go and look at properties where we would be whispering to each other, I think this is a triplex. And then the real estate agent selling it would say, this beautiful land with this backyard. And he said, you know, I know you can subdivide it, but why would you? We were there thinking, well, you'd subdivide because you'd have three smaller houses that were cheaper, more affordable. And they sell like hotcakes. That is the whole point of urban infill for the private investor is that you are financially rewarded for filling the gap between public policy and public need. And that is this migration, this evolution of urban infill that we're going through right now that many mm. other cities around the world have already passed. Yep. yep. So that transition requires that action, requires that development, that risk, and someone generally has the opportunity to be rewarded for that in the market. What we saw in that process was then the inability for local government to address it. So they spent more time fighting everything and creating a policy that was anti-development. And understandably, development at that time would be a face brick, low ceiling, flat little house in the back of someone's house on the front. They weren't particularly well designed, but they were quick. They were cheap. They were easy. They were very functional. And so one of my first planning applications went in with my design. I was doing it with uh, two of my friends at uni. And I remember putting the drawings and uh, I I remember even the planner's name. I'm not going to mention him, but he just looked at my drawings and he goes, son, I don't think you understand how it works here and pulled out his pen and started to draw on my drawing saying, this is what you need to do. And basically pushed the drawings back to me and said, okay, okay, boy, go off and, you know, do your thing. That was when I realized that we, we really have what appeared to be an immovable object. Yes, yeah, we have a lot of in local government planning space these days. There's, there's a lot of a, nearly a parking inspector, gatekeeper culture, mm. a control-based culture rather than a, an affirmative teams-based, solution-based culture. And I, I would like to keep having that conversation on this podcast about starting to improve the culture coming out of bachelor of planning at Curtin. Too often I see there are two types of planners coming out of that university degree. The ones who have a mind for control and for the negative side of the world end up in local government. The Mm. ones who want to create something and who are on the more progressive side of development, planning, urban design end up having to go into private practice, whether in planning or in development, because their views generally don't align with the very nimbiest culture that starts at the head, the council, and then permeates through the body Mm. of the local government. It's hard to fit in as a progressive person in the local government in a planning space. Uh, Yeah. And to be honest with you, I mean, local government in the end, you know, we are talking about people who are elected where they're winning their, you know, their ward with 100 votes. I I wish it was 100 votes. I mean, that would be something, you know, we've heard of stories as, you know, as little as 20. And the problem is, is that then they have to pander to that small population. And I've been in council meetings where the councillor is speaking, you know, wax lyrical about, oh, look at this design issue and that design issue. And they're a furniture salesperson or they're a chemist. Each profession I have no issue with it. I respect them for what they do. But But you're not an architect or a planner. And this goes to something we were speaking about before. One thing I think that lacks in local governments that you've brought up to me this morning is there is a clear gap there in competency when it comes to design. And when we think about the R codes these days, there are two pathways to approval. There is the acceptable outcomes deemed to comply a mm-hmm. pathway where there mm-hmm. is obviously a table-based, planning-based metric that if you tick these boxes, yep. you essentially have an approval. Yep. But there's also based on the SPP 7.0 that was produced 
by Jeff Warner and his team of state, state architect uh, many years ago, a second pathway, which is the design principles pathway, that Correct. if you don't meet the acceptable outcomes or you don't aren't deemed to comply, depending on which volume you're looking at, if you can meet the design principles, the 10 design principles, mm-hmm. amenity, character and context, sustainability, these sort of things, then irrespective of what the metric table said was the specific setback or height for that R code, Mm -hmm. if you meet those design principles, you should be afforded an approval. Correct. Now, if the local government doesn't have the competencies to assess the design space internally, then how are they ever going to be able to provide an approval further to that when it doesn't meet the acceptable outcomes? Many local governments, like the city of Netherlands, for example, the second you're outside a setback by two millimeters, it then has to be referred to the local government council who are even less competent to make the decision about whether it should be approved. So rounding that out, one thing that you brought up this morning was uh, notwithstanding the inclusion of DRPs these days, which I think are very valuable and have been so for many years now, why don't the local governments either have full-time or contract architects picked from a vetted panel Mm -hmm. by the state government architect to help provide uh, commentary and assistance from the ground up, yep. from the application point in the approval pathway for those developments that are being looking to be assessed on the design principles. Yep. When you go to a bank, they say to you that they want you to get a valuation done, and that's from a panel of valuers that they vetted. So it takes out the outliers, and you know they have trust and faith in them. Or they're licensed to, or to they're actually licensed. Yeah, in make this, that decision. Yeah, in this case, I've strongly believe that there needs to be the implementation of architects into local government and that if you realistically if you call yourself a city then that's that should be mandatory yeah and then from there you know for smaller towns like say the town of Cottesloe sure if they can't have someone in the books all the time or let's even say Pepe Grove which is you know really share, small share one between yeah. four towns well you know and and or you just basically like in the same way they share a library yeah or you just basically say okay at this point in time you know uh, we need a we need an architect to come and represent us now a lot of people talk about the doesn't the DRP do that but that's an interesting conversation you don't really get to engage with the DRP on a day-to-day basis of moving information backwards and forwards to help yeah. you get your design to where the DRP would be even a further It, it is boost. quite a formal meeting, isn't it, Hutan? It's a, nearly a bit of a stuffy meeting sometimes. Look, you are correct, and there are scenarios like that. I do have to say I've had some very good experiences lately. I had a fantastic experience with the uh, city of Subiaco. They were very helpful. There was a lot of dialogue, but we actually engaged to the point that we solved problems. Good. I we was, need to see more of that. Yeah, I mean, look, I went to the city of Subiaco's DRP a number of times and then got my DA. Then I went back to the DRP to actually discuss some of the things I had an approval for that I think needed to be changed and openly had that conversation. Well, it's a traffic light situation, right? You've got essentially your 10 design principles here. Yeah. That's what they're assessing you on. Yeah, and look, thank God it's on that traffic light. It used to be a numerical and uh, you'd go to your shareholders and say, oh, no, we had a really good meeting, but I got 19 out of 30, which yeah. is, you know, I do like being judged by my peers. Um, I like that there is a mix of individuals involved at times and that the landscape architect can be there as well, depending on what type of project. I have an immense level of respect right now for landscape architects, and I do think they are the future of the city. They're becoming very relevant, aren't they? We've, they we've, never used to be 10 years ago. Well, we've now designed ourselves into a corner, if I can use that yeah. pun, and we now need them to unravel it, specifically because when it comes to issues of sustainability, they are literally the most educated in that field. I have always felt, though, that you know, we meet with them, we make a presentation that's minuted, then we leave as, a, as an applicant and they have a further meeting 
and we don't know the results of that meeting until they give us the minutes and their responses. And sometimes issues come up where no one raised it at the meeting, and it seems a little bit unfair that we're having to deal with that. DRPs can be a little bit cumbersome when members of the DRP change from one meeting to the next. Let's talk about height. I, lo- oh, I know yeah. you love talking about height. I yeah. like talking about height. Does Western Australia's planning system, culture, population have an unhealthy fetish with short buildings? Yeah, so from a guy who's five foot seven, you think I would not like height, but I think one of the biggest mistakes that we're making right now is that we have turned height into some sort of a bogeyman where, you know... It's um, weaponized. It's it's completely weaponized. Usually that the, the reference against it is uh, that, you know, by you having the height, you've taken away from the uh, local residents' amenity, with whatever that means. If you want to deal with height, start looking at what's actually on the ground floor. Hmm. Because your main engagement with a building is going to be somewhere between three to five meters tops. The shop front. Yeah. And if anyone out there is in doubt of that, I welcome you right now. Give me a call. Let's meet in the middle of Hay Street Mall and look up. And the first thing you see is actually some really quite amazing buildings you would have never even noticed. You know, I make a point of that when I walk in the Hay Street Mall. And this is we're talking about the second level because most of these buildings are two levels mm. tall. Yeah. I reckon most people and everyone in Perth has walked walk down the Hay Street. Many people would never have seen the second level and the beautiful facades behind there. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the eighth or ninth or tenth level that may or may not have be there in the future. No one looks up. I guess we could spend an hour talking about the economic benefits and realities of increasing critical mass in locations for the benefit of the ground floor. And the exact reason why we have situations like we had three or four years ago in town centres like Mount Lawley, like Leaderville with shop fronts closed and four lease signs everywhere, mm-hmm. you'd easily point to the one thing that availed that and it was a lack of critical mass in town centres. Yeah, so when we did a project in Fremantle on Henry Street in the West End, our application, we had a building that was four stories. They wanted us to not have the fourth story. Uh, we had it set back because the, the facade of the building at three stories was aligned with the strong horizontal line that existed in the West End. And we were sensitive to that, and we we established that as a kind of a datum point, and we set back the top floor so that, you know, from a streetscape, it was somewhat uniform. But then I've been in other areas where they're like, oh, you can do five stories and you can do seven, but the top two stories need to be set back. And I'm like... a different color. And and I'm just like, why? What's the point of that? There's actually even no... You know, there's, there's no utility to it. And yeah, there's no precedence for it. It's somehow yeah. just this thing, oh, we just keep setting our buildings back ad infinitum. It's as if we're all kidding ourselves that whether a building is five stories or seven stories, there is some amenity difference to the public, the public realm. Now, my perspective very clearly on this, very unequivocally on this, is that height should only make a difference if it has an impact on overshadowing, which affects people's access to sunlight, which is mm-hmm. a real deal, and overlooking, which affects people's access to privacy, right? Okay. If you can ameliorate those two things in your local context at whatever zoning you are at, and you can make design principles that can, to be frank, probably be benefited by extra height because of the economics of it and what that can bring to the quality of the project. And it can also bring things like extra landscaping because most likely the the building parcel will be far smaller because Mm -hmm. of the height availed to you. What is the negative to the public realm? Other than what seems to be, again, a control-based, parking inspector-based view that, well, it was only zoned for four stories, so you shouldn't be allowed to have six stories. You're benefiting economically from that one. You only paid yep. for four. Yep. 
how are we living in a society where that is really the only arguable view from the non-progressive side? We have a culture right now where if you go into a backyard and you see a building, you can see any kind of building at a distance that somehow you're losing out. Something has been taken away from you. I guess that's that kind of amenity that you've lost. Well, that, that can be the only way that can be explained. That can because be, yeah. it's not like there's a physical connection yeah. or nexus between yeah. people at... 10 meters or 100 meters or a thousand meters away with yep. an apartment that's 30 meters off the ground yeah most people will never have access to that apartment yeah. well and they turn around and they say things like well someone can look over like if they've got a high window that's frosted or they can look over and i'm like well someone can look over your fence as well we we have an understanding that culturally that's not what we we do but just i want to get back to that the first one where you said about overshadowing this is actually a point where we might even slightly diverge it depends on what kind of overshadowing we're referring to so i was at a I think a property council functioned many, many years ago, and there was a planner who was talking about you know, quality street design. And he showed a cross-section through a street, and he basically took the width of the road as the radius for the height of the building. And I said to him, why? And he said, oh, for solar penetration. Now, let's just discuss that for a minute. I remember that the planner said, well, that's our mantra, that's good design. And I just said to him, you're right, 80% of the streets in Paris then are, are an abomination and Amsterdam and Barcelona. And I said, that doesn't really ring true. I'm not saying that it's not a good thing to have when you can, but you're creating, you're, you're creating this fear of height. And here's the thing, they actually wanted the solar penetration to be as far down as the ground floor of the shops. And the, and the footpath. On the other side of the road. On the other side of the road. And obviously, you know, at a certain angle that the sun was at. It was a furphy. It was something made up and they couldn't explain. And then the second problem is, is that in the back, what you would have is you would have a high uh, density allowance on the street and immediately in the back, it would fall to R20. And that is where you do actually have a problem. So mm. you have- there's a, no transition whatsoever. There's no transition. So you would have a building that would be four, five, six, six stories high, seven stories high. And the only way to make the person in the, ba in the back, probably living off a laneway, feel comfortable is by then creating the terraces in the building. Mm. Now, the terraces in the building are, look, economically, they're very, very hard to implement. They're not always the best spaces that people want to engage in. They have waterproofing issues. They definitely have now energy issues. The building is just becoming fatter and thicker and more complex. It's just a whole bunch of swimming pools as you go up. Yeah. I'm not saying don't the do it. The cake layers is what you're referring the cake to. Layers, Malcolm yeah. Mackay refers to it as well. Jeff Warren, I've, I've seen, refers to it. These guys really do also publicly have an issue with this culture we seem to have of creating cake layers. You don't see it in any other major city in the world where the top floor or the sub-penthouse has stepped back. What are we achieving there other than waterproofing issues? Now, let's talk practically, anecdotally about your development you're now doing at the moment, the mm. Rockaby mm -hmm. on Rockaby Road in Subiaco. It's across mm -hmm. the road from the Elysium development for Correct, people yeah. to get an idea. It's at, the, it's at the top of Rockaby Road, I guess, yeah, on the other, the other side. Yeah, I think most people would, would know it as the one that's acro across the road and a little bit down from Bukla, Bukla yep. being the epicenter of that area. You're nearly finished, right? But I remember you putting a post up on LinkedIn a few weeks ago talking about how the limitations of height have had a serious impact on your development. So you're on the high street of one of our biggest activity yeah. centers. It, look, it's and not, you were limited to how many floors? Uh, limited to three stories. Uh, in that time when we put in the application, it was, uh, they'd actually, I should rephrase, it was just limited in height. And that was a wall height of nine and a roof height of 12. It was implying that they wanted you to have three stories, the nine, nine meter wall height. So, you know, each story being three meters. 
But the architect, and I, and I do really want to give a shout out to Matthews and Scavalli Architects, did a brilliant job of working with us in creating a mansarded roof development where we actually have an entire floor in that. So from 9 to 12. It looks like a bit of an attic. It looks like a, a bit of an attic. And if anything, interestingly enough, I think one of the reasons why local people resonate with it is that the mansard, it kind of reflects, you know, some of the uh, mansard uh, roofs that you would see in some European cities. Uh, you know, I don't want to be too Eurocentric, but it worked in our favor at the time. And they did a really great job of creating that look with what is still a very limited library of products that we can utilize, mm. especially with costs. That was a very interesting project. It was one we had a really, really robust conversation with the DRP. Then from there, it moved to council, where one of the councillors said that, you know, oh, there's uh, 20 apartments here. At the time, we, we applied for 10. The councillor had given this kind of like A4 memo to everyone saying, why do they get 20 apartments? Why do they have 40 bays and this, that, and the other? And that wasn't our application. Mm. Or it's a 10 apartment development. And suddenly someone said, no, sorry, it's 10 apartments and half the parking bays you're saying. And I never forget the councillor going, okay, well, I still don't think it should be approved. And then when it went to vote, she voted for it. So it was very, very confusing in that regard. And that really does prove a point that their ability to read plans is terribly limited. Mm. But we had an 11 out of 12 vote, almost unanimous. And at the JDAP, we had a unanimous vote. These buildings are not going to go anywhere. We'll still see the rock be in 100 years, I would mm -hmm. suspect, right? Yep. So once it's built, it's built. Mm -hmm. You can't rebuild probably on this site ever again, I'd say. Commercially, if you had your choice, what would have been the height you would have been happy to take the risk on from a development size point of view and confidence of sales point of view that you could have put your hand on your heart and gone, I could have built that to that height and provided that many apartments over that number of stories. Yeah, so I would have probably gone a further story. Just one more. Just one more. And the reason is because in the end, we are limited by parking. So the parking layout, how far do you go? Now, we could then have a conversation about going below ground, but it was a small site. So by the time you ramp down... You're not getting many more. You're not bags. getting many more. It's not worth it. But it wasn't just at the height. One more story would have been more than ample, which I'm not sure now if is allowed. But to be honest with you, the biggest joke of the whole process is plot ratio. Well, we're happy to see that in the new medium density code, plot ratio is no longer a factor. Yeah, right? it's, it's absolutely. Look, plot ratio was a blunt instrument used for control. And, but what it was, it was something very easy for counselors who don't understand yeah. buildings. I have seen plot ratio make so many projects. Unviable. You're looking at a building where they're telling you, we don't mind the building envelope. We like the way it looks. We don't want you to shrink the building or anything like that, but you need to go inside and make your hallway half a meter or even a meter wider so that the units are all smaller so that the habitable space doesn't go over plot ratio. Yeah. And at that time, the height of the building and the plot ratio of Rockaby was enshrined. There they, was no they often don't match up. The possible height and the possible setbacks don't match up with the plot ratio, simply in that you could build a building certain height to a certain setback but you would then be limited by a plot ratio, which has no impact on those two things. Well, so here's the interesting thing. So one of the things they say is that the building envelope allowed and the plot ratio are to work together so that you basically implement everything that you want within that building envelope. So if you're going to have a projecting balcony, your balcony is within that building envelope and you just make the building smaller. But, you know, the metrics of that kind of thinking might sound very good to a planner, but the reality is, is that we are also in the process where we need to purchase the land. We need to 
be able to look at how we are going to actually get revenue. And let's not fool ourselves, and I'm never going to say this, we are not altruistic. No, we're, we're in a capitalist society. Even if we were, the, the, we, none of us really are developing with cash. We need the bank support to develop this site. And the bank are certainly not altruistic. Oh, they want to see a profit line to protect their investment. Exactly. And right now, you know, you, you go and you say, oh, I'm, I'm only going to have a 10% margin. And I appreciate there are uh, altruistic projects like Nightingale, where they have a different group of shareholders and things like that where they can do that, no problem. But realistically, most of the buildings are going to be done capitalism as the underlying ethos. So when you get to that scenario, they start saying these building envelopes, but you really don't know exactly where that's going to fall. You have a plot ratio, which you're going to try and maximize. And they say, well, you're at your plot ratio and you might be at your building envelope and it's really not meant to work that way. But this is the bit now we're talking about planning where do we work on a, a kind of a prescribed methodology. So we prescribe to the developers how things are going to be done or we look at a performance base. Um, well, those are the two options. And most planners don't understand that even at a JDAP level, certain JDAP members do not clearly understand the difference between this prescribed methodology and the principles methodology, which is seen red tape after red tape stand in front of medium and high density developments. Without a doubt. I've always been in the belief that it should be performance-based. And if it performs well, why shouldn't it exist? Height is something that I'm willing to discuss if I see there is an interesting precedence that is of some value. If it works well, if it provides, if it has all the amenities right now that we have to implement in with the you know new design codes, which is yeah, intense. What is the harm, right? The major proponent of harm in our society right now is a lack of supply leading to a lack of mobility and homelessness. That's right. What's a bigger evil to society? It's not the perceived amenity loss of an extra one or two or three stories on a building that's probably hopefully going to be around for 100 years mm -hmm. to which the future context will match up anyway. It is the lack of supply mm -hmm. provided or the inefficiency of supply not provided to every development effort made currently by the current developer cohort in Western Australia. If you allowed developers to build to where they commercially believed they could actually sell these apartments, developer won't build 30 stories if he only thinks he can sell 10, mm -hmm. right? Then we wouldn't have a housing supply problem. We wouldn't have a rental crisis problem. We wouldn't have rental price problems. Mm -hmm. The performance-based principal outcome must be the path forward. Height is not the issue. Perceived outcomes of height that can be managed are the issue we should be controlling. Yeah. Can I ask you a frank question about mm. the Rockaby now? Mm -hmm. Let's move on quickly to construction costs. Do you reckon you could build it now? No, definitely not. The scenario that we obviously, like most builders would have had, is that they would have priced. We have a you know fixed price. You find this, the need for price increases, but they have a capped contract. That's why you have seen so many builders go under it. And it's not because they, they don't know what they're doing. It's because of the fact that the term I think you use was unnatural selection. It's totally apt because... This had nothing to do with their business acumen, their accounting, their management, anything like that. It was the fact that how lucky were they to not have projects that have a, had a fixed price. Mm. You think of cyclical capitalism and it does often thin the herd. It gets rid of businesses that aren't doing very well. But this last cycle of, of since COVID that was stimulated by government grants who are, and I'll, again, I would say the, the government was not culpable for this situation, but they're certainly responsible for this situation of adding that extra sugar hit to the industry. No builder out there, whether competent or marginally incompetent, four years ago would have the capacity but for dwindling their savings pool, running on margins of 10 to 15% to withstand cost increases in their business of 40 to 60%.
no business would be making a dollar in the last few years. The, the only ones that are surviving, as you said, are the ones who luckily simply avoided that risk by not having that many contracts at that right wrong time, or like the super big guys in town, had tens of millions of dollars to draw from in savings in the first place. That's it. Everyone else will go broke. Yeah, I have a good friend of mine who had a building company. They had quite a few projects on. And when I heard about the grants, I was like, oh, you know, in my mind, I was like, oh, that's great. But, you know, he just kind of went, oh, crap, this is going to have massive inflationary pressures. And he knew that he had a lot of contracts that were fixed price. You know, as a building company, there's a point where it's like, I'm actually underwater, but I want to finish these projects. I have a name. I have some goodwill. They start putting their own savings into it. They, their business owes themselves a lot of money, and they're trying their best to kick the can down the road so that the next projects, hopefully there's some stability and they can get out of this. There's no other choice. There's no other option. There's no next project. There's no next project. There's no one acting immorally or unethically. There's just someone going, I just got to keep going. Because as soon as they say, I have a problem, bang, insurance kicks in. Mm-hmm. And it, it all comes off hoping for this Hail Mary pass. And it uh, hasn't come because the reality is, I'm going to ask you this next question. You're looking at the same numbers I'm looking at. Is there a project you think right now you could start? Yes, it, but it, they would be limited and they would be predominantly in specific suburbs. I've just commenced on a project that I'm doing in, in Dalkeith. It's a, an apartment development. That's an area where the buyers are actually quite desperate. There's a lot of people who want an apartment in Dalkeith. It's to their benefit to buy a well-sized apartment. And they're the kind of people who can carry that price increase. The that's quest- a very niche part of the market. That's a very niche part of the market. So if your question, if we rewrite your question and say, is there anything right now that was closer to affordable housing that I could start? The answer to me is an absolute no. Like I have looked at projects where if they gave me the land for free, I would break even. There's not a lot in the residential space right now from a developer point of view across the spectrum of the housing continuum that works. We have developed 110 triplex duplex developments for our clients over the last six years. They call me every week asking, when are we starting the next one? And my answer is not yet. It still doesn't work. The apartment space, it's only in the luxury space where the buyers will pay what they need to, to help us turn some level of profit Mm -hmm. otherwise it can't get off the ground it's very hard to see at the moment anything working and it's also very hard to see builders looking to bend over backwards to build it given how scared and burnt they've been over the last four years that they'll be in the same situation again look the prices are coming down we're noticing it inflation margins are not though margins are not so i have a Another development that I'm doing in uh, Netherlands, uh, a townhouse development. We just signed with Oswald Homes, which I'm really, really well excited regarded. about. Well, very well regarded and a great team. We are now only slightly away from our, our initial budget because on that lower scale, medium density, the half of the trades now are on the other side. The bricks are back down to mid ones. A brick again? It's definitely gone back. I mean, I've, I had a quote at one time. It was over five bucks, so that's not going to happen. <laughs> Good uh, luck to that brick. Lab. Well, I've actually pinned it up on a wall somewhere. I just thought, yeah, remember that day. Mm-hmm. At the moment, the larger groups like Oswald are capable of going to the trades and saying, look, you know, give us a better price, but we'll give you six, seven jobs. And really, I think any tradesman out there would be a fool not to look at that because there's a cliff coming and that that gets you a little bit over the line, gives you some longevity of your business. And these are projects that are just about to get started. Hutan Golastani, it's been a fantastic chat today. Uh, thank you very much for your insights over the last couple me. of decades in West Australian development. Good luck with finishing off the Rockaby. Thank you so and much. And next development Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au 
subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!